Luke chapter 1 and the verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The big surprise here is the place to where the angel comes. Nazareth of Galilee. That's the big shocker. If the chief priests in the temple or the ministers in Herod's palace had heard that an angel from heaven visited Nazareth to address a peasant about the kingdom of God, the response would have been total unbelief. And they would have laughed at the tale. And if they had been assured of the fact of the matter, they would have been totally shocked and dumbfounded. In fact, it probably would have been a greater shock to them than it was to Mary herself. Nazareth is not a place chief priests or Herod's palace worried about. The mentality at the time is that which is reflected in Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was a Galilean. So he knew that northern part of Israel fairly well and had some idea and inkling of Nazareth. They maybe didn't even know anything of all about it down in Jerusalem and Judah. But he was a Galilean and his attitude was, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? So it's not totally unknown in Galilee, but it's totally unmentioned in the Bible. The name occurs in the New Testament, of course, about 30 times. You can study that and look at that in your leisure. But it occurs because of its connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought it its fame. Jesus is a common name, of course. The Joshua's of of the Bible times have to be differentiated. And how they differentiate Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. So even the Nazareth... We don't suppose there were too many Joshua's. He has the name and he is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the prophet from Nazareth. And of course that wasn't a big selling point. If you want to be a, a renowned prophet and you know, a world famous prophet, your press officer wouldn't give you that title, Jesus of Nazareth. But that's, that's the name he got and that's the name he took. That's his title. And that was part of his self-humbling. The very name very origins, his identification with this obscure, most obscure place. He took our identity as well by taking that identity because the people that he redeemed for the most part were not many mighty and not many noble and not many famous and well-known, but base and feeble and unknown and obscure just as Nazareth is. So he loved us and he took the obscurity and all else that came with his dying for us in our place instead. He wasn't born there as we know, of course. We know that he was born in Bethlehem and had to be according to the prophets. But he was conceived in Nazareth. There's no question about that. And was raised there. And his name is first identified with Nazareth. In this portion of scripture. 
because Gabriel says in Nazareth, the first mention of the name, you'll call him Jesus. So he, he is identified as first named here in Nazareth. And that name never left him. He came into the world with it, Jesus of Nazareth, and he went out of the world with it because above his head on the scripture, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So Christ has made Nazareth famous. And any trip to Israel, it's a beautiful location, and it has hills all around it, and nice views from the hills. But at the time of Gabriel's visit, it was practically unknown. Don't let the word city confuse you. It has a very wide meaning, the word city, in the Bible, in the New Testament. It can be translated any number of ways. Don't get in your mind a massive metropolis every time you read the word city. It may be just a walled habitable place. It may be just a place habitable that has a synagogue. It can be used for much, much smaller places. The scholars tell us that at the time of Jesus there couldn't have been more than 500 people living in this location. It's off the beaten track. It's 15 miles from the main road that follows down the west of the Sea of Galilee, a major trade route. And it's not well-traveled part over into that part of Galilee. Although the people have lived there for hundreds of years, and archaeologists tell us that way beyond 800 years before Christ, it was a habited community. But you don't read of it anywhere until here in Luke chapter 1. Josephus, and he is the historian at the time of Jesus, and he mentions a lot of places in Israel, but never, never mentions Nazareth. The Old Testament never mentions it. Uh, the Jewish Mishnah, uh, the Talmud, no mention of it either. No famous people came out of it. Insignificant. Nazareth is the epitome of insignificance. Why then is heaven converging here? And that's our question tonight. The Lord God that we were considering on the Lord's Day morning, the Lord God who's sovereign and over all, why is he converging here to the place of uttermost obscurity? Nazareth. Why is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in flesh, God taking flesh in the womb of a virgin, why here in Nazareth? The answer is very simple, of course. Providence. God's providence that never errs, that never fails, that never makes mistakes as he carries out his plan, carries out his decrees. God's providence has designed it and arranged it. The royal house is here in Nazareth. God knows that. The royal house is here. What's left of it? Nazareth, among other things, is an ideal place for safety and refuge in the turmoil of national strife and troubles and dangers from abroad. It's off the beaten track enough to, in the main, stay out of those major things that are happening in the turmoil of the land. It is a good hiding place. And the archaeologists have uh, made a lot of discoveries there about 
underground pits and many of them being dug deeper than normal in the land and they reckon that they were dug for concealment and for hiding in times of trouble. So the people in Nazareth were interested in hiding, being obscure, being concealed. As I said, it's a small basin surrounded by hills, not easily accessible, and it's a refuge, a little refuge. Not from all threats, of course, but at least your identity wasn't promoted and advertised and highlighted, promoted all abroad for everybody to know. It's a good place to conceal yourself. And there are some in the city here not wishing to advertise themselves, not wishing to promote themselves. It's the remaining household of David. That's where they have come to. And it's not by accident. It's by design. God's design and their design too. The household of David. Do you remember our studies in Samuel? Do you remember what was in God's heart? David. A man after my own heart. David. And not just David, but David's seed. The son of David. That's in God's heart. And God's heart is drawing him to Nazareth. That same heart that called David out of the sheepfold, that same heart is drawn now to Nazareth because the royal house is there. What remains of it? Ultimately, David's greater son then, to be called Jesus. God's heart hasn't changed in a thousand years. You'll notice that David's name is in the text. Joseph of the house of David. That's important. That's why the angel is in Nazareth. That's where the house of David, what is left of it, is there. The royal descendants of direct line from David are no more at Bethlehem. They've retreated and they've been reduced in size to this little hovel or a few hovels in Nazareth. We know how Herod feels about these things. If he thought there was a royal lineage, a royal line, he would wipe it out. He wants to protect his kingship. We know what he done to the little boys of Bethlehem. So that the house knows where to abide and hide. Royal blood is always in danger of being sought out and destroyed. The Old Testament tells us that. Satan, I don't even think Satan knows where the house of David is. It's that great a secret. It's that much concealed. Do you not think Satan would wipe it out? Do you not think Satan would have the hordes there in Nazareth if he knew? He doesn't even know. But God knows. His heart knows. His heart draws him there. His heart has put them there to protect them, to hedge them, to cause the survival until the fullness of time. So this is where he is, Joseph of the house of David. And it's important that the adoptive father have legal line to the throne. Joseph. Although we believe that Mary also is the house of David as well, because they weren't allowed to marry outside tribes, so she certainly belongs to Judah. Now, I think when you look at the genealogies and what the scripture teaches, 
I think she married in the tribe and she's of the house of David too. But the legal, the legality of it is in Joseph. The adoptive father. He's of the house of David. And so Nazareth is a refuge for this royal house. Not a refuge from heaven. Bless God. Gabriel knows. So this is how obscure the royal house has become. But God knows where it is. Because David never leaves his mind. He never takes his eye off the lineage of David. Why is that? Why is that? Well, we'll come to it in time. But you'll see in Second Samuel chapter 7 that God made a, an oath to David. He swore an oath to David. He says, whenever your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, I'll set up your seed after thee, which shall proceed out of your bowels. I'll establish his kingdom. He'll, he'll build me a house. I'll be his father. He'll be my son. My mercy will not depart away from him as it did for Saul. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So because of the youth, David is going to have a son, a seed, whose kingdom is going to be eternal, everlasting, unto the end of the ages and ages and beyond. And so God remembers that. And the Bible so often tells us about that. And they often sung about it in the Psalms. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn unto David my servant. Psalm 89. Psalm 132. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. And so because of this oath, God hasn't been taking his eyes off this line. And now he comes to it in obscure Nazareth. So Gabriel arrives then at the door of the royal house. That's the first thing then. The royal house is there. And God always knows where we are, brethren and sisters. Wherever we go, he knows where we are. He knows the dangers that we face. He knows the enemies that would oppose us. He knows our people want to snap us out of his hand, to pluck us out of his hand. But he'll always protect us. He'll always watch over us. He'll always preserve us. He'll be as watchful as us as he was of the parentage of his son. He'll be as watchful of us because we are joined by faith to Jesus Christ. We are his body. And he will be as watchful of us as he was of the humanity of Jesus Christ. He loves us like he loves his son. That heart that's on him is on us in our union to him. Another reason is, of course, that, that Jesus can grow up here in relative safety. You know how they sought him out in Bethlehem and sought to destroy him. And they had to go down to Egypt for a time. That's not an ideal situation. But in time, as, while he was still young, they brought him up to Nazareth, back to Mary's home. And he was reared there in obscurity. We don't really know anything that happened for the 30 years. An odd wee thing, but not very much. We know he got a career as a, what they call a tacton, who works with not only timber, but, but stone as well, probably mainly building houses. That, that was his labours in the obscurity of Nazareth and the surrounding area. 
uh, there's a city that was nearby Nazareth. It was being developed at this time. And probably Jesus was part of the workmen that was working on that city. But there he is in obscurity. He can grow. He can become a man before he commences his public ministry in the safety of Nazareth. This obscure place. But as I say, for a little while he had to be in Bethlehem so that prophecy could be filled. Thou Bethlehem, out of thee will come. And there had to be the birth in Bethlehem. But the raising in Nazareth. So this is why Nazareth, God's providence, God's preserving plan. He's in control of everything. He's sovereign over all. He is, as we said, and often will repeat, the Lord God. The Lord God who give unto him the kingdom. So we know that the Lord is, is looking after the childhood and the youth and the young manhood of Jesus as well by having the family here in Nazareth. But a third reason is undoubtedly the name itself. The significance of the name. Everything has meaning in the Bible. Even the name. You see, the whole Bible is so, so unique. It's not ordinary history. It's history that God has arranged in his providence and recorded in the book so that even every name of a place there is something of Christ and it has some link to the overall story of redemption which is part of the uniqueness of our Bible. And the name is not accidental. The name is providential. It has meaning. And the meaning has a story. The meaning of the name is a sermon in itself. The meaning gives a message. The name cries out. It cries out. And it, it has to be heard. And it cries out especially in its identification with Jesus Christ. I mean, you have it above the cross. Jesus of Nazareth. There's a sermon here. If we but had the mind of the Holy Spirit to read it. And to understand it. And may the Lord give us understanding of his word. May he open up the scriptures to us. As we use the key. Who is his own son, Jesus Christ. So there's something about the name. What can we say then about this? He's called Jesus of Nazareth. He's also called Jesus the Nazarene. It's the same thing from Nazareth, an inhabitant of Nazareth, a Nazarene. And Matthew picks up on this because whenever he is dealing with it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, he says, they went to Nazareth that it might be fulfilled as was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now in the early days of Christianity in Judah, even the followers of Christ got this name. Paul in Acts 25 verse 5 was called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the early followers were called the sect of the Nazarenes. The wee heretical sect who followed Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarenes. It was a title of despising them, dishonoring them. You know, it's a case of tying them all with the same brush. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth obscure. Nazareth has no honor. There's nobody famous come out of Nazareth. No rabbis, no lawyers, no chief priests, nothing like that. No, these Nazarenes are like their master. It's so distant from Judaism. It's so distant from Judah. 
It's so distant from Jerusalem. It's so distant from the temple. They're the sect of the Nazarenes up there in Galilee of the Gentiles. So the early Christians were called Nazarenes, even though they didn't live in Nazareth. But they were identified with this Nazarene. Providence has brought this about, of course. An identification with the name must therefore have great significance, and according to Matthew it does. This is all part of the prophets, what they spoke being fulfilled. He'll be called a Nazarene. The problem is, we don't read that in the Bible anywhere. You'll not find any chapter and verse for he'll be called a Nazarene. And yet Matthew is the one who tells us it does. He says it was predicted. He says the scripture said. He says, and he doesn't say it was just one prophet. He says it was spoken by the prophets. At least two, but the indication seems to be practically them all. It was spoken by the prophets. He'd be called a Nazarene. And yet we don't find it. And this is very puzzling. And there are all kinds of assertions made. Nobody's really agreed on what Matthew means. Some have thought that it means he's a Nazarene. Because it, you know, it sounds like a Nazarene. Nazarene, Nazarene. Very similar. But no, that's not the meaning. A Nazarene has nothing to do with Nazareth. No connection whatsoever. Totally different. Maybe John. John might have been a Nazarene. Uh, he has all the indications of being a Nazarite, but not the Lord. There's no proof that the Lord was a Nazarite. In fact, there's much proof to the opposite. He touched the dead, which a Nazarite couldn't do. And he dealt with the vine and with the wine, which no Nazarite would do. He ate with publicans and drank with publicans and sinners, and that's not water he's drinking. So he's not a Nazarite. It's not a Nazarite. So I don't think that's the right explanation of it. I think Matthew's making a play on the word Nazareth, Nazarene. And he's summarizing the prophets, the teaching of the prophets. He'll be a Nazarene. The word is applied to him, and not just the place. The name belongs to him. And in Providence, oh, he happens to be born in Nazareth, or conceived in Nazareth, and brought up in Nazareth. That's just the Lord saying, that's what I mean. I'm even bringing you to the right place, what I mean by this word. A Nazarene. What does Nazareth mean then? I'm at the mercy of the scholars here, and they don't agree. But there is good consensus, however. And that's what I'm interested in. They look upon it as a, a double meaning, two meanings that are actually linked. Now, the root verb of this word, the verbal root, means to watch, to guard, to protect, to hedge, to keep an eye on so as to keep safe. The noun root, the word means a shoot, a plant, a tender branch. Now both are linked, of course. That's the, the wonder of Hebrew language, of course. Your verbs and nouns, they're all interlinked in all kinds of pictures, and they all come together. Well, a tender plant, 
and let us shoot. You have to watch it. You have to protect it. You have to guard it. It's delicate. It's in danger. You have to preserve it and protect it. The verbal form, the noun form, a little plant, a little root that needs guarded. And that's what Jesus is. A tender plant. A shoot out of a dry ground. A branch. You see, the house of David has been reduced to nearly extinction. The house has fallen. He's off the house of David. What? There's someone left of the house of David? The house has fallen. There hasn't been a king for centuries. But there's a little shoot. It's coming from the womb of a virgin. It's beginning to appear. The house is up by all appearances is gone. And here's what left of it. The stump. There's only a stump left in Nazareth. And it's been delicately guarded. Delicately watched by God. This womb. And into it the little shoot comes forth. Mary's espoused to Joseph of the house of David. And that branch now is beginning to appear. It does talk about the Bible, the Lord Jesus being a branch. As I said, Joseph's not unimportant because he contributes to the legality of all of this. Adoptive sons have the same right as natural sons. To Mary then is born a tender plant. And that's her. A branch. And I think that's what Matthew means. This branch, this plant. He'd be called the branch, the tender plant. Born out of the dry ground. And the Bible's talking about this all the time. Isaiah 53, he'll grow up before him as a tender plant. As a root out of a dry ground. He's no form nor comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 11 verse 1, there'll come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Do you see that as roots? You know, the picture isn't here. A big tree, massive tree, hundreds of branches, a wonderful big tree of David, hundreds of branches. Oh, and there's another one coming out now. That's Jesus. No, that's not the way it is. The way it is, it's, it's just reduced down to the stump. That's all it is. Looks dead. Looks like nothing there. But wow, a branch out of the root. That's Jesus. That's why he's in Nazareth. He's being guarded, protected, preserved. This, this tender branch, this, this shoot. A lot of people came to Nazareth, as I said, I think, to be hidden and guarded. But none needed guarding like this Jesus. Now the word is used, branch, is used of descendants branch of the family tree. We, we even use the same language ourselves today. Behold the day has come, saith the Lord, Jeremiah 23, because he predicted the same. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and the king shall reign and prosper. And Zechariah said the same. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, 
and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That word branch that I've been quoting several times, uh, the same Hebrew letters that you find in Nazareth. Out of the womb of the virgin, a tender plant appears. A miracle. Yes, it's a miracle. A wonder. A miracle of miracles. As, as we said on the Lord's day, not only has a virgin conceived, but God has kept his promise made to David. That's the wonder of it all. And that's what this is all about. Gabriel, off you go. It's time when the fullness of time has come. The Bible says. Made of a woman. Made under the law. Gabriel, it's time. The decree has to be fulfilled. Off you go. He sends an angel to do that, you know. Very interesting. A holy angel coming to the mother of the living one, Christ. Gabriel is sent because it's time. It's time. It's time to keep my word. It's time for me to fulfill my promise. It's time for me to give David that route. To raise up a son to sit on his eternal throne. And Gabriel goes into all of this when he speaks to her. Do you see how mighty the Lord is? He's in control. He brings his plans to pass. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. How marvelous is his providence. He's done great things to me. He's performed all these things which he told us about. He's kept his promise to our fathers. Mary sings of these things. She sees it. She's amazed. And we should be too, brethren and sisters. The Lord keeps his word. The Lord keeps his promises. And out of weakness and out of hopelessness, he brings forth strength. That's how God works, you know. That's how he fulfills his word. And how he keeps his promises. Out of hopeless situations. To the very extremity when it looks like we might as well give up. He brings it out. God likes to do that, you know. He likes to bring us to the point of near despair. To say if we'll trust him and believe him. And then he just brings it all out. That's just the Lord. He's so marvellous. So good. And it's so that no flesh glories. And everybody sees it. It's, it was the Lord that did it. And he gets all the glory. No glory to the house of David. All the glory is God's. So do you see why Mary is amazed? Do you see why she sings the Magnificat? And do you see why Joseph is Faithful and obedient and doesn't come near Mary, though he takes her to wife. Do you see why? Why he won't touch her? Because he sees this is God's work. This child is special. He sees it. They all see it. Whenever it's explained to him, of course, and and, and later on in Matthew chapter chapter one. God has done to Mary great things, and Joseph feels a part. And he can sing with Mary too. He has showed strength with his arm. 
He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their seats. And he's exalted them of low degree. Of very small and tiny insignificance. He's exalted them. He have filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He sent them away empty. Just as he spoke to our fathers. And brethren and sisters, in our union to Christ, we too may feel we are tender plants. And we are tender plants. We're very vulnerable, you know. We're very easily snuffed out. It's not hard for the, the devil to utterly overcome us. It's not hard for our sinful hearts to arise and destroy us ourselves. We're weak. We're feeble. But God preserves us onto his everlasting kingdom. As he preserved his son, this tender branch, he preserves us in our union to him because we're tender as well. We're little delicate flowers that Satan and his madness can just come along and just pull and root up out of the ground and cast away. He would be capable of doing that. We know it ourselves, brethren and sisters, don't we? We're so weak, we're so feeble, we're so tender. But this story tells us as he guards and watches over his tender plant, Jesus Christ, so he guards and watches over us in our union to him. The little tender plants coming out of his side because we believe in him. We're coming out of his side where he's bought us with his blood. We're delicate. But he guards us and keeps us. That's what And he'll keep his promise. He'll keep his word. He'll keep his oath. I give unto them eternal life. Nobody will pluck them out. No one. No man or devil or demon from hell. No one will pluck them out of my hand. As tender as they may look, they're guarded in the safety of my heart. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. That's his promise. That's his promise, brethren and sisters. So don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid at your weakness and Satan's madness and your failures. Because Christ guards you. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, out of trials. He knows how to do that. So he knows how to deliver and guard us as well and to watch over us. So this is the lesson. Because what happens to Christ happens to us in our union. So we also are kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. And to God be glory for that. Amen.